We are starting a new book today. We're starting the book of Jude. The book of Jude. It is the last of five Messianic epistles that we are covering. We have previously, in this class, covered uh, James and Hebrews. And then we covered, we just finished 1st and 2nd Peter. And so this is the last five of the Messianic epistles, meaning that it was these are epistles written specifically to Jews, and uh, and and we 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 see sort of uh, uh, we 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 can tell that it's written to Jews by by the way that they cite different stories that only Jews would be familiar with. So he's reminding them of different things from the Old Testament, and the Gentiles were not familiar with that because the Gentiles didn't have the regular practice of going to the synagogue and such. And Jude is believed to be, and let me tell you, I have read several theologians trying to get this thing right, and they vary extensively, okay? So if, if, if I go against one of your favorite theologians, I'm sorry, all right? But, but I, will, I will be going along with another theologian. All right, because they vary on a lot of different points when it comes to some of this. Jude is the same name as Judas. It's the exact same name. In fact, the translators into English did not want to use the name Judas, so they just changed it to Jude. They referred to the same person as Judas in the, in the Gospels. Judas being one of the half-brothers of Jesus, meaning that, that uh, believed to be Mary the mother, but the, the father was Joseph and not God, so the half-brother of Jesus. And, and, uh, uh, and you say, well, why would they change it from Judas to Jude? For the same reason that my German teacher in high school used to tell me that Adolf was a very popular name in Germany until the end of World War II. And now you rarely meet a German named Adolf. Uh, so, so names fall out of favor because there was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot means uh, Judas from Kariot. And you can go today to Israel, to the town of Kariot, and see where Judas was born. And so, so um, <clears throat> uh, it's the same person, and, and Judas is just the Greek name for the Hebrew name Judah. So this is the name Judah. In Greek, it's Judas. For this book, the translators just truncated the name to Jude. And that's the way it is in English, but that's not the way it is in Greek. In Greek, it's absolutely Judas. Um, uh, in, this, in this book, so, so this, is, this is believed to be the half-brother of, of Jesus. There were about five uh, uh, Judases in the Gospels that are listed between the Gospels and the book of Acts. And, uh, uh, and so scholars, most scholars agree that, that this, is, this is the one that they're talking about, the brother of, the half-brother of Jesus. And you can see this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. It says, is this not the carpenter's son? Meaning that they were referring to Jesus. Is this not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph? and Simon, and Judas. So these brothers that they're referring to, one of them is Judas, and it's believed that, that that Judas is the one who wrote this book. 
Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 3 says the same thing. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So you, you, you see that, that he was referred to. Uh, in this book, it's, it's really an, an, an interesting uh, uh, time period here of people that he's referring to. And um, uh, what we're going to see is we're going to see false teachers have come in. Now, this is probably written to the same people that Peter was writing to in his epistles. As we looked at in 1 Peter, Peter named the five cities of people that he was written, writing to. And so that was to be an encyclical, meaning that he was to take, they were to take that letter and read it, then go to the next of the five cities and read it. So these were cities in Asia Minor, current-day Turkey, that he wanted this, this letter read, his letters read in. One of those five was, was Galatia, which we have a whole book that Paul, a whole uh, a letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And, and, uh, um, and then Peter is writing to them again in 2 Peter. And now in this book of Jude, it's interesting that it cites 13 passages from 2 Peter are almost exactly recited here in Jude. You say, well, Jude, where's your creativity? I mean, you had to take 13 passages from 2 Peter. And you say, well, why didn't he put quotation marks and citations? Because things were different back then. The use of quotation marks is a much later thing. And uh, we have much stricter regulations on how we use quotes. And, uh, um, and so he is, he, he's, and you say, well, which came first, 2 Peter or Jude? And it's obvious that Jude came second because 2 Peter as we just read, as we just finished, he keeps warning them about false teachers that are going to be coming. In Jude, he's writing about false teachers that are already there, in the church, already active. So this is afterward, and it's a reminder to what, what's been, been uh, put forth before. And these false teachers that he's going to be speaking about are believed to be the beginnings of the Gnostics. Uh, Gnostic, beginning with a G, and, and uh, uh, who felt that all flesh was bad, and, and only, only the spirit was good, all flesh was bad, and that Jesus, therefore, could not have come in the flesh. It was just some ghostly sort of, of, of being, that he was not actually here in the flesh, because all flesh is bad. And, and uh, um, the Gnostics didn't view themselves as false teachers. They actually viewed themselves as the intelligentsia, as the intelligent ones, as the elite, as the superior ones in the knowledge of, of, uh, of religious practice. And so they, it wasn't like that they, they, they looked at themselves as being false teachers. Um, and you see the same sort of thing happening to Paul, uh, where he was teaching things and these things were being twisted around. So, for example, Paul speaks about grace, and, and uh, this grace, this graciousness of God to forgive us. And then, what Paul then has to address in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he addresses, uh, uh, there's this sentence, remember, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Where people were taking that grace that he was preaching and using it as an excuse for sin, that, oh, God will forgive us anyway. Uh, the same thing happened to Paul again when he spoke on freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. And then, and then uh, uh, that led to an unchristian license, and that is addressed in Galatians chapter 5. If you look in Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul is addressing this concerning 
his own teaching. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, but only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Just because we have freedom in Christ, we cannot just do whatever we please. So Paul had to address that. And then the last thing was faith that people were twisting. This whole idea of faith that our actions are unimportant. It's all based on faith. And then this is addressed by James in his epistle. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? So you see that, that uh, uh, these three areas of Paul, freedom, uh, uh, grace, freedom, and faith, that there were teachers coming in and abusing these, and using them as license to walk in an improper manner. And so Paul was, was addressing those, and James was addressing those. You will see Jude addressing certain things here, where there's, there's teachings now that have entered into the church. So that's what he's getting at. So, so, and this book was written at about 68 AD, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, uh, because if Jerusalem had already been destroyed, we would know about it in the book. They'd make, they'd make clear reference to it. Um, so, Jude, verse ch- chapter 1, uh, there's only one chapter in the book of Jude, but uh, uh, Jude, uh, verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So he says, Jude, a bondservant, of Jesus Christ. You can learn so much about a person to see by, by, by hearing how they describe themselves. How do they describe themselves? And you can learn a lot about a person's character. Not just the absolute words that they say, but the whole principle behind what they talk about. You can learn a lot about a person to hear what they say. And you can also learn a lot about a person by the titles that they give themselves. And, and uh, uh, so here, Jude, he categorizes himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This bondservant is not merely a servant. It is a slave. It is a person who has committed themselves to slavery to another person. It's not that a person enslaved them. Remember, what happens is, when we come to Jesus, we go from being a slave to sin to being... Free. We become free. And then we are urged, we are not commanded, but we are urged to, to do this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you. He's urging them. He's not saying, I command you or you've been commanded. He says, therefore, brethren, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He urges us, he urges us to become bond slaves of the Lord. We go from freedom, we go from bondage to sin to freedom. 
And then, will we willingly become a bond slave, give, give our ear to be pierced through, and become a bond slave to the Lord? And that's what he's urging them to do. And that's the way Jude characterizes himself. He says, I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll meet people and you'll say, uh, they'll say I'm apostle so-and-so. And, and uh, you can learn a lot about a person by the titles that they give themselves. Now remember, in the Bible, the definition, part of the requirement for being an apostle in the Bible was they had to have seen the risen Savior. They had to have seen the risen Savior. Uh, But people will take that, that, that name of apostleship quite liberally sometimes in our culture today, and sometimes not even realizing what an apostle has, has to go through. I mean, if you look at the lives of the apostles, it's not easy. Of, of, the, the 11, of the 12 that walked with Jesus, Judas hung himself. Of the 11 others, 10 of them were killed for their faith. And the last one, John, was banished to the island of Patmos for his faith. It is tough being an apostle. So if you want to call yourself an apostle, just remember... You, are, you, you may be committing your life to, to a real hardship. And so, so here, here uh, um, he describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Why doesn't he even call himself a half-brother of Jesus? Because he's very careful about these sorts of things. You know, imagine if somebody walked up and he said, you know, Jesus is my half-brother. You'd be like, whoa, <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, <laughs> Sit down here. Teach us. So he, he, he's the brother of James. James was a very well-known person in the early church. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, um, James was, was martyred, and uh, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the half-brother of Jesus. The brothers of Jesus did not believe in his lordship, in his messiahship while he was alive. This only happened after the resurrection. We have evidence that, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Peter appeared to James, his brother, appeared to him, and that transformed James' life, James, James's life. We have no evidence in the scriptures that he ever appeared to Jude. And so we know Jude is a prophet, but we do not know that he is an apostle. He does not list himself as an apostle. Jesus may never have appeared to him. This may have been handed to him by James in an understanding. And he lists himself as the brother of James. Again, we learn a lot about the humility of this man's character by the way he characterizes himself and by the titles which he assigns to himself. Then he goes on, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He says, I'm writing to those who are called. I'm writing to the believers, to those who are called. There is a calling. People do not like the word election sometimes because they don't like the word election. It depends what version of the Bible you read. Sometimes it doesn't use the word election. It uses the word chosen. Do you like that better? That's the word that the Bible uses. And it uses it multiple times, either election or chosen. And here he says there are the call. They're called. And now these are believers, and he says, you've been called to those who are called. Paul said that he was called as an apostle. Every one of us has been called. He says, to those who are the called. We are the called. If you are a believer in Christ, you are the called. 
and you have a calling upon your life. And every one of us, our calling is different, but we are to be about serving the Lord. We are to offer up ourselves as a bondservant to Christ. You thought, no, I, I, I just like being free. Well, watch what your freedom will do to you. That freedom is a dangerous tool to have without yielding it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, there is a calling. And he has a service for every one of us. If you're not involved in service, you ought to be. Service somewhere. And it's generally not just one thing. You know, like I come in and I set up a few chairs on a Sunday. No, it's much more than that. It's the commitment that you are serving in a capacity where people are depending upon you. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. He is reminding them that you are beloved in God the Father. These are not perfunctory statements. To some people they might be. Not to Jude. These are important. I've told you before, when I say to people, God bless you, I really mean it. I really mean it. Even when people treat me in, a, in, 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 a, in an unkind way, I just say, God bless you. And it's not, not you know, like that expression, well, bless his heart. No, it's, it's not that at all. I really mean I want God to bring upon you the blessings and all of that entails. And sometimes blessing is hardship in your life to bring you to Jesus Christ. It means a lot to me when I say to some, somebody, God bless you. He says to them, beloved in God the Father. You are beloved in God the Father. If you are a believer, you are beloved in God the Father. Every one of us has something of low self-esteem. And here this man comes and just builds us up. And he says, you are beloved in God the Father, the creator of the universe, the one who's made this universe as far as we can possibly detect, and further, and further, and further. He's made all of that. That one who's made all of that, you are beloved in. This is what his promise is. You are beloved in. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You are kept. There is a keeping for Jesus Christ. There is, he's holding on to us. Jesus speaks about this. He speaks about this in, in, in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus said, to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So this is fulfilling the words that, that were spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. We have been given to Jesus Christ by God the Father. We have been given to Jesus by God the Father. And he loses not one. He loses not one. And so, so you see that, that he says you are kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Again, these statements, these statements are, are, are powerful. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Again, this is not just filling words. I mean, this is a very short book. He's not just wasting words. Every word in this book is true. Every word. Every word in this book is God-breathed. There's nothing wasted here. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Not just that you get mercy. I pray that it be multiplied upon you. That peace be multiplied on you. Who doesn't want peace? I mean, everybody wants peace in their life. You know, who wakes up in the morning and says, I hope this is going to be a miserable day. I hope that, that you know, like, like uh, I get, get uh, 
you know, my car gets run into by another car. I, I, hope, I hope I twist my ankle. I, nobody does that. Everybody wants peace in their life. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He's just proclaiming this upon them. This means something to him. Now in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. So he he wanted to write to them about a a new term that I just learned studying for this soteriology, which is is the, the, the study of salvation. So he wanted to write to them some big treatise on salvation. But as the guy is trying to write, you know, maybe, you know, you're sitting there, you're trying to write it, and it's just, it's just not, he's like, I got to tell these people something, because there's, there's, there's a real danger upon them. I don't want to go into this, you know, long sort of treatise, you, you know, write a book on, on salvation. These guys just need a short letter that there's problems in their church. There's a real problem, and I got to do this, and you know, sometimes you, you'll go to, to write a letter or something, and you're like, no, this person doesn't need to hear that. What they need to hear is this. And, and you totally, and that's exactly what he's doing. He just, just crumbles up that first page, he throws it away, and he writes them this letter. And it was probably a good thing that he did, because if he'd written that book on salvation, it'd be lost by now. But that he wrote this short little letter, it's now become a part of our Bible, so everybody's reading it. So this was actually the better thing to write. Then he says, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, it's important to realize that our salvation is common. It is a common thing. We share a salvation. We share a salvation in Jesus Christ with every believer around the world. It is a beautiful thing. I go all over the world, and where I meet believers, there is an instant commonality across all sorts of cultures. Culturally, we are totally, totally different. But in Jesus Christ, boom, there is a commonality and a oneness, all because of Jesus. He transcends all cultures. Jesus, the Son of God, transcends it all. Immediately, a oneness in Christ. It is a beautiful thing that we have. Nobody else has this. Nobody else has this, this sort of commonality with, with so many people around the world. You know, if you graduate from Rice University, you'll meet, say you meet some graduate from Rice University in some other country, now you have some commonality. Oh yeah, what college were you in? Yeah, what year? Nah. And, and, and uh, you, we have this commonality in Christ that is, we're the alumni <laughs> just all over. They're everywhere. They are everywhere. And this is the beautiful thing. We have a common salvation I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he says, I'm appealing to you. I felt it really necessary. You know, I've just felt this burden. Sometimes you feel a burden to talk to somebody something or write to somebody something. This is the burden he felt. He says, I I felt this necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Contend for the faith. 
Contend for the faith. This is what it is. We are to contend for our faith. This is not a passive thing. It is active. We often have to be on the offensive. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, That's the worst thing you can do is offend somebody. No, that's not the worst thing you can do. You can, you, 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 can, you can have them die and go to hell forever. How's that? I mean, there are things worse than offending people. And, and uh, Jesus didn't mind offending people at all. Remember in Luke chapter 11, he says, the lawyers say, when you speak, the lawyer said to him, the, which, is, which is a religious scholar, is saying to him, a Talmudic scholar, saying to him, when you speak to the Pharisees that way, you offend us too. And Jesus is like, oh, Did that offend you? How about this? You have killed every one of the prophets. Every one of the prophets. From Abel to Zechariah. Boom. That's the bookends. Because remember, the the Jewish Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament, ends in 2 Chronicles. The last person to be killed in 2 Chronicles is Zechariah. So from Abel, the first one to be killed, to Zechariah, you killed them all. You're responsible for all of their deaths. And that poor lawyer is like, you know, it's just just overwhelmed him, overwhelmed him. Jesus was not at all concerned about raising offense. He says you need to contend for the faith. This is something we contend for. Sometimes I'll, I'll be going at it with somebody. People are like, why don't you just, just calm down? You, you shouldn't, shouldn't talk like that. I said, well, how about if I talk like you and not say anything? And just let this person... I mean... We are to contend for the faith. We are to contend for the faith. This is a contest. We are contending for the faith. I'm appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. There is hard work in contending for the faith. You want to contend for the faith, you're constantly trying to learn and to grow and to to learn these things. When I was your age, I don't know anybody that was teaching apologetics. I just did an interview with Sean McDowell. He is the son of Josh McDowell, who wrote the book More Than a Carpenter. That book came out when I was in college, like when I was a freshman or a sophomore in college. And I saw, I don't, I don't even know if it was a tape or a video. And if it was a video, it, it had to have been a reel-to-reel video. And they played it when I was in college of Josh McDowell, who was a young man at the time. Now he's an old guy. And now I'm, on, I'm an old guy, but I was just a student. He was, he was a, you know, a full-grown person. And, and uh, he, was, he was talking about this more than a carpenter book. And I was blown away. This was the first Christian apologetic that I had ever heard. The first defense of the gospel that I had ever heard. There weren't that many going around doing this back then. Now you got like... You know, every campus ministry is, you know, got some sort of apologetics going on in, in, in it. And, and, uh, but this con- contending for the gospel, contending earnestly for the faith, this is what we do. This is what we're called for, which was once and all, once for all, handed down to the saints. This was handed down to the saints. This is not something that we just learn in books. This was handed down. This is handed down from one person to another person to another person. And this is why we can't just say, well, I'll just learn all this on my own. You can't just learn all this on your own. I'll tell you, you can learn a lot of organic chemistry by by watching YouTube videos. 
But you will never become a good organic chemist just by watching YouTube videos. You won't. You have to get in there and work with people who do organic chemistry and throw these things about and get into a laboratory and start making molecules. That is the only way you learn this. I guarantee you can watch every YouTube video on organic chemistry. You will never become a famous chemist. Never. Because there are things that are handed down through relationships with other people. It happens in the sciences, and this is why we speak about mentors. Who was your mentor? People will often ask me, who was your mentor? Who did you get your PhD with? Because as soon as they hear that, they know how I think. They know how I was trained. They know the people with whom I had worked. And it immediately lets them know something about me. This faith is handed down to us by people I am deeply indebted to certain people that have spoken and taught into my life. Dr. T.E. Koshi, who was the evangelical chaplain at Syracuse University, and he loved the Lord, and he ran a local church that I was in. Brother Bak Singh of India, how I learned so much from this man, how he poured himself into my life. And then Buck Hatch of Columbia International University and, and, and uh, how he just poured himself into me. And then Delmore Brosma, who was a, my pastor when, and he was a professor at, at the university and also the pastor when I was in graduate school. These men poured into my life. They handed down to me an understanding of the faith. This is handed down to us. This has been handed down to the saints. This has been handed down. This is why we have to be in relationship. We have to be in church. And I know many people that ever since COVID, they have continued to only have church online without having the personal interaction of the body of Christ. And it is a sad state of affairs. You will never grow. You will never go very far like that. We have to be in relationship to one another. We have little kids in the body of Christ. You have old people. You have people being born and people dying all the time. In this church, there are funerals all the time and there are births all the time. All the time. The same pastor will go and, and visit with a woman who's just had a baby in the hospital and then leave there and go to a funeral of one of the, the, the older saints that's passed away. Every day it's like this. This is what the body of Christ is like. This is what life is like. There is this relationship. And when you live just on a college campus, you kind of get this view that this is what life is. That is like, like, like a nano part of life. There's so much more going on. If you don't know the Lord, I urge you, I urge you to know him. Please come and speak to me afterward. You and I will sit together, and in one hour, you will walk out saved. You say, how do you know? Because I know. Just, just try it. Try me in this. Come and speak to me right afterward, and, and, and we will get together, and I'll share with you for an hour. All right? If you're listening online and, and, and you need me to, to, and you want to talk to somebody, if you are unsaved, if you are not a believer, you do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, send me an email to tour at drjamestour.org. Tour at drjamestour.org. Send me an email. We'll get together by Zoom. You get saved that day, okay? I'll need one hour of your time. You need a good Wi-Fi connection and you need the camera on. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. You are good and righteous and holy in every way. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and cause them to rise up and contend for the faith, to be those that would proclaim your name, contend for this precious faith. 
Father, I pray that you teach them from the character of this man, Jude, how he's walking in humility. He doesn't mind being second to James. He doesn't mind being called a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Father, let them learn humility from this man, Jude, and the seriousness of his words with which he takes his words. Mercy, grace, and love, these blessings that he pours out. Father, I pray that they take these things seriously. Lord, I pray for the unbelievers that you would save their souls because they are in bondage, in bondage to sin, unable to step away from it. Father, I pray for their salvation that today I will see somebody saved. I commit this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.